Welcome to A Path Home. This is the podcast where we demystify the tasks related to after-death care through hearing stories from people who have cared for their own deceased loved ones at home. I'm your host, Sarah Cruz. I'm the director of Heartland Prairie Cemetery, a home funeral guide, death educator, and a member of the National Home Funeral Alliance. On this winter solstice episode, I have a conversation about grief with Colorado-based death educators Lauren Carroll and Erin Morelli, also known as the Death Wives. You'll find the link in the show notes to watch Erin's TEDx talk, as well as the link to their website where you can learn about death school and their other educational offerings and events. And of course, be sure to follow them on Instagram and Facebook. I hope you gained something helpful from our conversation, and I wish all of you a lovely winter solstice and end of the year. I'll be posting again in January. I'm here with the Death Wives, Erin Morelli and Lauren Carroll. I just so admire the work that you're doing, talking with people about all aspects of death and dying and how to approach this in community. Thank you. Yeah. And thanks for having us. Of course, the National Home Funeral Alliance have been heroes um, and leaders for, for a long time. It can be really difficult at a time of year when people are kind of expected to be sort of happy and, and engaged and showing up at different events. And as we carry grief with us through these days, it can be really tricky. Definitely. And I think that that's a lot of the conversations we've been having lately and not just because of the holidays, but because of what's going on, you know, in the world at the moment, we can't help but grieve every single, I mean, there's, there's just so much to grieve right now on top of our other grief that we have layers and layers of it. And really everyone is experiencing it. You know, you go to those holiday gatherings or parties and it's either small talk, which to me is often painful, um, or more real talk, which is also painful because that's what people want to talk about, right? Is there loss in their grief? It's just, it's everywhere. So I think when it's everywhere, we have to lean in a little bit. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. But like you said, it's such a large topic. It's such a large topic. There's the grief part of it. There's the business part of it. There's a spiritual part of it. There's the fear that encompasses like all of that. Mm-hmm. Our ongoing I don't know if pleasure is the right word. We'll talk a lot about duality, I'm sure, in today's conversation and the idea of, you know, holding two polarities at once, grief and joy or whatever they they are. So so I hesitate when I say it's our pleasure to be here to talk about grief, uh, but it is because it's important. We have to talk about grief. It's not going to go anywhere. So we're not doing ourselves any favors to not understand. Yeah. I often have referred to it as being a very patient housemate. Yeah. It'll just sort of hang quietly around all the places until you really are able to invite it into your home and into your life. It'll just wait. It'll wait. It'll be there for you when you're ready. When a song comes on or a familiar smell, right? Like in an unexpected time often. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think a lot of people don't always realize that either. They think like, well, I'm not grieving. So the grief's not there. The thing that Aaron and I find often is that people just kind of need that permission to share their story, to talk about their grief. And then all of a sudden they're realizing like, 
oh, I didn't realize something that happened 20 years ago needed to be grieved still. Um, Mm -hmm. And like you said, I love that analogy of, you know, kind of the roommate who's always there, but you have to actually acknowledge it for it to function. Like grief is a function, just like joy, just like it's a way for us to express ourselves and what we're feeling at that moment. And I think a lot of people don't think they can express it first off or that, you know, they should be over it by now mm-hmm. or that it's, mm-hmm. it's been processed. Uh, I, there's a lot of pressure around that too. People saying, oh gosh, that was so long ago. Oh, you haven't, you haven't gotten better. They, your husband died like a year and a half ago. <laughs> and I mean, there are people who, who, may not look like they're moving on and that they're stuck in this grief. And then people get concerned versus being helpful, right? They think something's wrong with you that you haven't moved through your grief yet versus sometimes people just want to sit and talk about it and be open to it. I recently, Erin knows this, got um, new health insurance. And when she was asking the name of my business and what I did, I heard that immediate, like, oh, and she's like, I wish I would have known about you a year ago. My husband died. And she talked for about 20 minutes and told me that she's lost friends, that people don't want to talk to her about her husband, that she saw some of his friends recently and just brought up how much he loved barbecuing. And then they immediately changed the subject. And so Uh. she, she was just so grateful that she could talk about him and any of this to this complete stranger on the phone. Um, But you could tell that it's just been sitting in her Mm. all this time and just felt like she didn't have the space. So it's one of those things, like, especially this season, but there's always an opportunity to talk about grief and people almost always take it. And I would add to that too, like the reason that time doesn't necessarily equal having moved on is because if it is just that idle roommate, just kind of sitting there all of that time, that's not the same as if it's active and if it's being processed intentionally and being given spaces to express intentionally. And when we talk about funerals and ceremonies, that's a lot of the theory behind it is we want to create those spaces where people have permission, where they have even some level of instruction on how to grieve out loud in community. Because um, here, at least in America, the standard funeral is pretty buttoned up and we don't want that. We, We want there to be places where we can grieve because it's the activity of grief, especially in community that creates us, you know, getting, getting to whatever our next chapter is. I don't like to use language like getting over it or or even like moving on, but it's more of an an absorption and an integration. And like, how else can my world continue to grow with this part here that might be dead? And then going back and having opportunities to like constantly till till that soil and, and just like everything else, it's going to have phases of, of more and less activity ebbs and flows. You know, sometimes we could be tapped out. I personally have been tapped out on grief this last week, the enormity of it, my own, my communities, the world's. And I just needed a few days to kind of feel numb and go underground, but not looking at that as depression necessarily, not looking at that as like numbing out. It's preservation. It's okay. This is going to be a long-term relationship. It's going to be a long haul um, with this grief because it's not going anywhere. So like, where can I just little bits of reprieve so that I can stay in the game? 
Exactly. It's learning how to carry it with us for the rest of our lives. Like we're not going to, it's never going to go away. It just becomes a part of who we are and, and how we are able to include and carry grief forward in our lives is the challenge. It's the challenge of being human, right? It's universal. If we're going to love greatly, we're going to, to lose. And if we don't, we're losing too, right? So how do we sustain a life where we always have a little bit of a broken heart? It's the real uh, I love the way you said that. So Aaron, you experienced the sudden and tragic loss of your sister. And mm-hmm. I was so moved by how honestly and compassionately and thoroughly and painfully you shared your experience of grief and that significant loss on social media. You talked about it, you wrote about it, and and then you did a TEDx talk, which was amazing. So um, I just want to thank you for that. Yeah. And I also would love to hear your um, how you chose to to face it and approach it in that way, in such a public facing way. Thank you. I haven't really reflected on this with other people, so I appreciate the opportunity too. Um, I didn't feel like there was a choice really to tell you the truth. I didn't say, okay, I'm going to use this as a teaching opportunity or, you know, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to gather community around me. Although both of those things happened and I'm grateful that both of those things happened. Um, I just had a surplus and absolute obesity of shock and grief that I didn't know what to do with. And I've always been someone who uses writing as a way of expressing. And I've been talking about grief on the internet for years and years and years. Um, And so, you know, I couldn't just say my sister died, uh, you know, on Facebook, like somebody might, I had to I had to say more. I don't know. It would have been incomplete for who I am. It would have been incomplete for her legacy. It would have been incomplete for my grief. And then once I did start sharing, there was such a positive response to that. You know, so many people cared and you need that. If there's anything that grief, you know, gives back to us, it's, it's makes people care about each other. You know, people really cared and that did help me. It didn't make me not angry or, you know, horrified or shocked about my sister because it's so much duality. Like that was just as present, but there was this other little 5% or 10% where it felt like love, you know, and it felt like something I could lean into because I had all of these tools already from, from being in this industry too. I could use it as a tool because I knew what I needed, right? I knew that we needed money. I knew that there were certain people, you know, in my family that needed certain types of support. And so I had this great network um, to resource those things from. And I was uniquely positioned in that way. And I'm very grateful, you know, for that. But it also gave me so much contrast to see like that most people don't have this experience. And in fact, my my other personal experiences of grief were so different, you know, than this one because I got to have so much involvement in her end of life care because I had the unique opportunity of having a community around me that was engaged and listening and compassionate and to great degree also could relate. So many people came out of the woodwork and said, you know, my sibling also died or I've lost someone in a, you know, to suicide in a similar way. Um, and you need that, I think. I think that that was 
when I go way back to my origin story with, with death work and how it all began, my first love died and I didn't have a community and there wasn't any, you know, any help. And I attribute that, you know, I attribute my desire, my part of death wives in a way to that. Like I wanted to create what I didn't have and what I needed because, and, and, and I say that and it sounds like it's about me, but this is a universal need. Like so many other people need this too. And we all feel so isolated in it. Exactly. And when we're feeling alone in our grief, like we're the only ones experiencing it, it is so, um, it's just so isolating and it can get really dark really fast if you don't have people to talk with and that community around you that you had cultivated that were there for you when, when the time, when that big grief came barreling through the door. My brother coined a phrase. He's like, I've never felt like overwhelmed with kindness before. I felt overwhelmed with, you know, people's kindness. And that's not a very typical experience for people to feel that, you know, we're kind of used to the opposite. And I was certainly used to feeling the opposite a lot of the time. So it was, it was beautiful. It, it, you know, it didn't diminish the loss I was having, but it like wrapped a blanket around it. Mm. I do too want to say, I think it opened up a lot of opportunity for people to have conversations that they've wanted to have. Like Aaron was saying, you know, other people were able to say, I lost my brother, you know, to suicide and, and I haven't talked about him in 10 years. And like, just reading your story brought me back there. And I think seeing somebody else bear witness to their grief opens up that space for other people. It's, Again, we live in a culture where it's like, no, keep your grief to yourself. Don't cry in public. Don't make people uncomfortable with your grief. When in reality, we're all grieving. We started this conversation off just talking about the heavy grief that I think we're feeling worldwide at the moment for so many reasons, for so many things. And we're just sitting with it and feeling isolated with it. And, you know, I've shared during COVID as a funeral director, I would have one person die of COVID and one person die by suicide and one person overdose. There was such darkness and such isolation. And it's just because we forget that we are in this together and we're in our grief together. And it makes such a difference, like what Aaron did, just to announce, like, I am grieving. This is my grief. And then all of a sudden that opened up a space for so many people. And I think that that was what inspired me the most was Erin's great at writing. Like she said, that's, that's kind of how she's processed things, but she invited other people to finally start processing things by reading what she was going through. And I think that's, you know, that's beautiful. And I think there's so many people that are grateful to her and Stacy in this awful space and grief, but it finally, I mean, I would say hundreds, if not thousands of people were able to witness their own grief through errands. That's what storytelling does. That's what art does. That's what music does is it gives some, you know, something that we all relate to and we kind of make it our own like parts of it, you know, maybe you're different than our story, but the thread of it is the same. And again, that's the gift of grief is it makes us see each other and love each other. I wonder if we could talk about some of the aspects of grief, some of the things that happen. Um, I know that for me, last summer I lost my closest cousin 
I went out there and spent three weeks with her at the end of her life. And she had a really, really hard death from colon cancer. Mm. And it was, it was tough. And processing that grief, um, it did open up for me the other losses that I've experienced in my life and had to take a closer look. I guess what I'm getting at is if we could talk about, you know, losing sleep, uh, oh, the physical, effects. all of the physical effects that can happen. Cause I think a lot of people aren't even aware that some of what's going on with them oh, is yeah. in that grief process. Mm-hmm. And like we age so quickly. I feel like I've aged five years in the last year and a half, you know, grief really takes a toll on yeah. our body so many ways. Yeah. And our brains too. Like I realized that I wasn't able to really think straight for a while, or if I'm in a conversation with someone and then I suddenly, I mean, I am aging and so I'm losing my train of thought pretty regularly, but like memory and the focus goes. Yeah, Yeah. you do. Do you have short-term memory loss? I mean, your whole world has now shifted. So it's like your reality shifts. So what is that going to cause? It's going to cause anxiety going to cause restlessness. It's going to cause, like you said, not being able to sleep and not really able to have your brain zoom back in is kind of how I like to think about it. When you're in fresh grief, it's like, and nothing makes sense to you. And then if we're expecting people to go back to work two days after the funeral. Yeah. And then they're held accountable for just not being better yet. And people give themselves such a hard time of why am I not better yet? Why does my body ache every single day? What have I done differently? And they just, I think a lot of people blame themselves from not being able to perform well at work versus a community who understands what grief looks like and being able to hold space for them. So it's like this double-edged sword, I think, of people not understanding like, why am I like this? Why can't I function well? Why am I getting sick all the time now? Why, you know, why can't I hold a conversation with someone? And then also having people expect you to be the same person you were before and be upset that you're not and not know how to support somebody because most of us have never been modeled that. We've never been shown what grief looks like and how to hold that space for somebody. And two days is, I got two days as a funeral director, as a funeral director. When my grandma died, I got two days off. And I think, what is it? Scotland. They finally just passed a law where you get two weeks paid off. Yeah. And we had a student just like, Oh, I can't believe that. That's just, that's not enough time. We're like in America. There's none. You are not guaranteed any day off. So sometimes it's our own commitment. I mean, frankly, my sister died during while we were teaching. I found out about it and I was teaching again two days later. But it's much different to teach a class, you know, for an hour or two from from your house than it is to like show up at a nine to five. That I could not have done. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We need to we need to grieve a lot harder in the immediacy of something so that we have the freedom to go back to work, right? And then have some design when we are going back to work for where we're going to put the grief. Because when you don't put it anywhere, like it comes out in our bodies in so many different ways. For for me, it has felt like a hijacking of my nervous system and of my memory. 
So like, even when things are calm or things are okay, my nervous system's like, you know, and it's all this grief that I haven't processed. And so if we can give a space for the grief to be active right away while it's still active and fluid and happening. And then for me, what that looked like was like, I'm not going to work until 10 o'clock in the morning ever. And I'm going to listen to Celine Dion and cry most mornings, even though my sister would think that was so pathetic. (laughs) (laughs) It got the tears to come, you know, forward easily. Can't, they're just for everybody. It's like, what are those songs or what are those poems you can read? Or what is it that will provoke your grief when you have given it space? Um, and get it out. However, it looked that day. Grief shows up looking different on different days. But I knew that, you know, 10 o'clock rolled around, I was going to have to jump back into my life and do stuff, which was a healthy distraction in a lot of ways. There's a fine line. And so the goal is like, how can you grieve actively? Yeah. Integrate it into your life so that you can still live because you are still alive. And I think that that's a hard part for people to, to integrate something you have to accept it. Right. And I think a lot of people get stuck in that space too, of like Aaron was saying, when grief is fresh and fluid, it's easier to move and process. And then when you're slowly kind of pushing it down and down and down, you know, how are you going to go back to that? How are you going to go back to that space where it's so buried and compact and probably what has been making you sick and unwell mentally and, you know, maybe turning to other coping methods that aren't healthy in any way. I mean, we see that a lot versus having the opportunity and the space to grieve, to be held by community, to not rush back to work, to not rush back to life, because you do need that time to really say, this has happened. This is real. And I need to sit in this space and really grieve it um, and get the support while I am. And then continue that support because grief changes. The landscape of your grief changes, but it's there, right? It's always there. Yeah. Sometimes too, it doesn't feel like you're experiencing it right away. I mean, you did say we got to grieve hard at the beginning, but sometimes it's like this feeling of numbness and you're going, I'm not sure I'm even really feeling grief right now. So it it can be um, a little illusionary like that. Totally. The beginning, I suppose, is a relative term because what you're saying is so accurate. The shock, the shock, I was in active shock for probably a good two weeks of, of, you know, and then the shock dwindles, this feeling of not believing it can last for months or years, you know, but I, I think I felt like I got more acquainted with shock in my most recent grief than I had ever become acquainted with it before. And it, allowed me what I realized was like shock is allowing me to function if I it's because your brain can't absorb it all at once you cannot receive the reality of something so tragic and so life-changing in, a, in an instant so shock is like a it's like suspension on a vehicle right? it's like absorbing it so that you can still like breathe and pick your kids up from school and like you know, tell, you know, tell people what you need to tell them in the, in the beginning. Uh, it lets it trickle in a little more slowly than if it was just pow. So I came to appreciate shock as something that was protecting, protecting me in the beginning. Yeah. I think those, when we say the beginning too, I usually think of it as the first 13 months when you're going through every single major thing, like every holiday, their birthday, and then their death day again. 
because that is every time you hit these milestones and they're not there, you're going to grieve it in a totally new way or even the same way. And so when people don't have that opportunity, I think one of the things that people don't realize is that the people who are survivors, right? They want to have the death day acknowledged. They want to have their birthday acknowledged. They still want to talk about them. And when the people around them can't support those special milestones, and again, 13 months to some people seems like excessive, but truly 13 months, I think is that fresh stage where this grief is so needing to be active, so needing to be fluid and really needs to be guided and held at those different milestones. I know we're talking about the holidays and this time of year being so difficult because I think people have a hard time integrating new traditions, living without the person there and not feeling guilty about it. Um, But the first holiday I think is always the hardest because it's so new. It's so right. you don't even know what to do. Yeah. The absence is so felt during those times. Yeah. And you haven't, you haven't cultivated the tools yet because it's your first time without them, right? It's your first Christmas without them. So how do you even process that? That is the integration part that takes years again, or yeah. a lifetime. It's not something that's just going to happen. So even in those first few months, we talk about the act of grief and like needing to physically move it because that's when you're going to have those most physical side effects, like broken heart syndrome, you know, the stress that your body goes through, the hormones that your body is releasing and the endorphins puts a strain on your muscles and your heart, especially, and people can die if they don't know what that looks like if they don't know how to move physically through this grief at the beginning. Because like Aaron said, that nervous system, the shock that people often go through, maybe they're not crying, but their body is feeling it. And it's in that those first few months that I think the physical aspect of grief is really where people kind of don't know what that feels like. And again, they think like, is this grief? Is this anxiety? Is this stress? Well, yeah, it's all of it. It's all of it. At once. (laughs) And that's a lot. What are some of the things that you've found helpful? Some of the tools that you've discovered have helped you through grief. I mean, obviously listening to Celine Dion and just crying along with music is a really good one. I do that a lot. Not Celine Dion is exactly, but. (laughs) <laughs> I'm not this, saying she's my favorite artist, just really effective at that. Oh yeah. Thing. <laughs> She's got some good grief and love songs for yeah, sure. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, other tools that you've discovered are very helpful or that helped you because it's different for everybody. So yeah, it's yeah. definitely different for everybody. I kind of referenced this earlier, but, but what helped me a lot was the idea of scheduling my grief. I knew that I could not get lost in it. I had gotten lost in grief before where I had to be pulled out of the ditch. And I knew that I could not do that this time because I had a business that I cared very much about that I didn't want to fail. I had two children that were grieving just as much as I was and a mom who was grieving just as much as I was. I wanted to support all of them. So I knew that 
grief was very important and that bypassing it was going to be, was not the way to go for myself or for all of the reverence I have for my sister and the spiritual importance of grief. But I also knew that I could not get lost in it and that I would have a tendency to do that if I wasn't intentional. What does that look like scheduling your grief? It just looks like, okay, I need, I need two hours a day where I can do nothing except for grieve, not take care of my kids, not make dinner, not do work stuff, not be supporting other people, whatever it is I need on that day. On some, on some days it was working out and some days it was, you know, walking my dog on some days it was calling a friend and needing somebody to be there for me on a lot of days. It was sitting on the end of my bed, smoking pot. You know, it was whatever I needed. Those That was my time for me to do whatever I needed for my grief so I could get all my feelings out so that when that window closed, it didn't feel like I was denying myself or like suppressing my grief to tuck it all back in and serve other people or do my job or, you know, be awake to the rest of the world as much as I could. And that didn't mean I got through it seamlessly. Lauren will tell you. I mean, when I, when my grief was fresh, you could, Oh, we're in an angry day today. Okay. Like, you know, there was a lot, there was a lot still (laughs) coming out. It didn't make me a saint as I walked through it, but it gave me a structure to walk through it with. And when, when it started to overflow, I could say to it, like, I see you, you're super valid. We're not solving this today. We're not going to have the answers to this today. You're not coming back alive today. And we will talk again in the morning because I got to do something else right now. So I was giving myself that structure. I like that idea. It kind of goes back to the roommate idea that you're talking to your grief. You're going, okay, not right now. No, can't deal with you now. We both got to survive this. I see you, but I need you to see the rest of me too. That's trying to not die with you. Yeah. Yeah. Communicating to the person too. I mean, having those conversations with them, whether it's you writing to them or you, I've seen people's, you know, put out two drinks, you know, their drink and then the drink for the person who's died and just still creating that space for you to have the conversations. This is why I love home funerals so much, right? I, that time that you get to say all the things when their body is still physically there. I think a lot of times, you know, I think that they just miss the companionship. And I think that that's another thing when we talk about integration is, well, you don't have to lose that part, right? You can still have a relationship with them. It's now changed. And I think that that's a space that opens up grief because you can talk to them and tell them how much you're grieving them. And like Aaron said, you're, you're setting time and intention, I think that that's an important part is there's an intention behind, I need to process this and I need to grieve. How is that going to look? Um, The other thing I was going to say is in death school, our very last week is community funerals. And when me and Aaron first made the program, it was because we wanted people to really take everything that they learned during the session and then put it together. But what we didn't realize was that people needed to bear witness to other people's grief and then grieve with them because it was opening up the space for their grief. Finally, in a way it's, it's that concept of me sharing Stacey's story, like Mm -hmm. so relatable and we don't talk about it. We just need to talk about it. Yeah. And I, you know, kids, there's the statistic one in 12 children will have a parent die before they turn 18. One in 12, that's a large amount. In the U.S., yeah. 
And you think about the disconnect within children and young teenagers who are going through this grief and that's not something that's taught or discussed. And now we go into adulthood and how have they processed that grief if they didn't have the space to, and then how are they going to process as new griefs that come into their life? I think it's just when we create the space to cry, to share our stories, all of a sudden too, that's creating space for not only them to hear you, to hold you, to care. I mean, Aaron said it, you got, you get so much kindness and compassion, but that's also because people are seeing themselves in you and they're seeing that reflection and they're not feeling alone, which opens up again. I mean, we had so many people go, I didn't realize that I was still grieving something from 20 years ago. And they do a community funeral for that person. And we all get to witness that person and they get to honor them. They get to talk about them and share their story with us. And so they too are setting that intention. Like, I'm going to talk about this. I have to be brave. I think that that's something that unfortunately is very true. Like you have to be brave to share your grief because a lot of people get shamed for it. And so creating those spaces for you to share your grief, I think is crucial in how to process grief for your community because you're giving them that permission. And I would add, you know, when you're ready, this isn't usually the immediate response, but maybe after a couple of months, everybody's on their own timeline. But like when you feel capable, you need to physically move your body because grief stows itself in all the little nooks and crannies. It makes us feel exhausted, right? Like in the beginning, we might not be able to sleep at all because our mind is racing. We want to know why. We feel like if we can consume more information, maybe we can make it make sense, even though it'll never make sense. But then a few months later, we might just feel absolutely exhausted all the time. So what can we do to move that stagnant grief that's in our body? And almost anything will do, right? Like whatever you like to do, just start to do more of it, whether that's working out in the gym or hiking or doing yoga. Um, or just deep stretching doesn't even have to be rigorous or it can be breath work. That's a really good one. It can be dancing. It can be singing that moves energy through our body. So how can you move energy through your body? That's like a more passive type of grief work, right? It's not as cognitive or cerebral as when we're sitting there like really lamenting, um, but it's just as important for, for the physical aspects of the grief. Yeah. It helps me a lot to be out walking in nature. Like mm -hmm. I just, need to get outside and something like hiking allows you also to focus on your breath and your body. And that's very helpful. And I think too, that reminder that as much as this has changed your life and rocked your world completely, we know, and when we're out in nature, the death is part of life. I always say like, I love life because of death, right? Like and so when you're processing your grief to face death too, I mean, you can't help it because that's all you're thinking about. And I think being in nature, like you just said, you're connecting, you're grounding, but you're also constantly surrounding yourself with life and death. Yeah, nature is both all the time, right? And it, I think too, like if we spend time in nature and we, you know, allow ourselves these kinds of thoughts, it, it, 
connects us, it taps us into this timelessness where we understand it as a cycle, where we understand how much death has happened before us, how much had to happen for us to be alive, how much is in all of the land, you know, around us everywhere. And it's when we really, really understand that, that we begin to see our life as a gift. You tell somebody who's deep in grief, like, oh, your life's a gift. They might be like, yeah, thanks, buddy. Yeah. Like, that might be yeah. the nice way. Exactly. You. <laughs> exactly. The, the timing, like what grievers need and what they're able to receive is going to be different you know, throughout their journey. But, but I think when we've really understood, when we really understand death and when we, when we really understand loss, it has a few things it wants to give us. It has a few things it wants to offer us. And one of those things that this, you know, this really is precious and fleeting and ours to do what we want with and that we should give that great consideration because this life is this thing that we have and there's nothing like losing it in, you know, in somebody that we love that makes us realize that or really contemplating our own, you know, really thinking about like, if I died tomorrow, what would happen to my children, my, my work, my, you know, everything, what would happen? People don't think about that enough, but, but if, you know, grief wants to give us gifts, those gifts are like the community and caring about each other and making people choose to live in a more intentional way, which we freaking need. Like maybe death is trying to shake us all awake right now. Like look at the way that we're living. This isn't the way to be living. I would say too, with the work that we've done, you know, Sarah knows I started by teaching about home funerals. I thought that was the thing. But really what the thing is, is the grief. And so really focusing on the grief aspect is going to change your relationship with death. It's going to change your relationship with life and how you show up in life. So really death work begins at grief, I think, because we just don't know how to work with it. And so we base it as a fear versus a human response and a human a big part of our lives. It's a painful journey. It can be like you were saying both. And there's going to be times of maybe even relief, you know? Oh, of course. And that's complicated for people. I think all the emotions that come with grief and thinking, is this normal to be happy that they're dead? <laughs> is this normal for me to feel, you know, lighter? Is it normal for me to be in my bed for a week? And the answer is, yeah. It is. I mean, I think one of the things that's really hard to face is regrets. Oh, if only I had done this, or if only I had said that. My cousin's sister and I went through a lot of that because we felt like um, we failed Barb in some ways in terms of what we were able to bring to her dying process. But, um, you know, allowing ourselves also to be forgiving of ourselves and our shortcomings in in challenging situations. I yeah. think the regret part is is heavy. The oh, I wish I would have said this instead of that, and I wish I would have. I mean, that's why you always say I love you to people, or at least as a funeral director, that was like one of my words of advice. Is just tell people how great they are. <laughs> tell them how much you love them because they won't be here. Tomorrow's never promised to any of us. And that's just a fact. And if we can process that part, then we process 
the life part too. We process how to be a good and kind person. Death is the great equalizer. And so is grief. Grief brings, it should bring community together because we all are going to feel it. It it should be an equalizer. We should see each other more human when we grieve. And I think that that's, that's the beauty of the opportunity to grieve in community. Mm-hmm. And like what Aaron did, it makes you feel not alone. And it makes you see that what you're going through is completely normal. And but other these stigmatizes. I mean, I think at the root of a lot of these conversations is just the typical that the average person's death aversion. And we know that a fear, uh, it, you know, we're afraid of things we're not familiar with. And people aren't familiar with death and dying because it's been removed from the home for so long, which is something that we're all passionate about. And that removal, that like separation between the family and the death of their loved one over generations created a wide enough separation that now we don't know about this thing called death. And so we're afraid of it. You know, it's about, it's about exposure. And because we're afraid of it, we're afraid to have these conversations, whatever regrets that you have, or, you know, people that come to us and say, I wish I would have known this sooner, or even people not feeling like they can express their grief. It's because we are so culturally afraid of the conversation of death that people don't have the easy opportunity to say what they need to say, to ask the questions that they need to ask. Um, and that's, I think, you know, one, one area where we're all collectively trying to make change and when we, where we see how important that change is. And then I think it's also important to say that grief is a privilege. That is really something that I've learned in these last couple of years. I didn't realize that in so much of my own early grief. Because in order to grieve, to reflect, to have those two hours a day where I'm listening to Celine Dion and crying or whatever, it means that I'm not simultaneously still just trying to survive whatever it is. But think about the people in Gaza right now. They are not having home funerals. They are not giving eulogies. They are not having safe spaces to lament for their dead loved ones. They are not coming to death wives classes and and idealizing what death should look like and then having the privilege of carrying that out. They're not. What was, I read the quote from a woman who said, how can I keep having tears when I don't have fresh water? And I think that, you know, we can look at it in a lot of things, but that survival space doesn't give you space to have the the relationship with grief that would be a healthier place. Even in America, that survival of, well, I need to go back to work. I still have to pay the bills. I still have to do this. You are still also surviving. You're not creating that space. You're thinking about the next problem and how to pay the bills. Which is also all real, right? I mean, that's another type of grief. (laughs) That's that's a whole other grief. I hate it. I mean, this is why we do the education we do. But when I was a funeral director and people would get a bill for $10,000 and have to split it up on different credit cards, I would always call that an additional, you know, secondary grief. Because now in the future, they're going to start getting the bills and they won't have the person. And now they're worried about how do I pay those bills? How do I do this? And again, it's like, well, I don't have time to grieve because I need to survive right now. And then when do you create that time to grieve? I think that's what Death Wives really does a lot is just talking about death creates a space to grieve. And I mean, especially this holiday season, be the brave one. Be the brave one who asks about the person who dies. 
Be the one who talks about them. Be the one who sets a plate at the dinner table for them because people want that. It's a space that people in grief want to have, but don't feel like they can. And so sometimes the biggest gift we can give is to be the one who gives everyone else permission just by saying, I really wish grandma was here. Everyone else is thinking it. (laughs) Be the one who says it. Be the one who says, I'm going to bring a picture of her and have candles. Even if people go, oh, no, that's too much. It's because of their grief, right? (laughs) And then when you create the space and are the one who says, yeah, and it's true. Like, we can't ignore this. It's going to invite other people in your family to be able to address theirs and say, yeah, you're right. It's like build it and they will come, right? Like when Lauren and I started doing this in the in the very beginning, I remember being surprised continually by how much interest people had in the conversation. I was like prepared for a lot more rejection than we received. And it was almost the opposite. It was almost like people were very eager once a welcome had been offered um, to share their grief because they didn't have places to put it and it existed inside of them. Well, thank you both so much for sharing what what you've shared today. I, I really appreciate your perspective. I so appreciate what you do in the world and how you show up and make space for other people who are entering into the confusion, the pain, the opportunity of facing our, our death and, and grief. Well, thanks. This felt like therapy. I know. This was really nice. Talking about grief. So good. This is so good. A Path Home is a production of the National Home Funeral Alliance, a nonprofit organization dedicated to educating and advocating for communities and families who choose to care for their own loved ones at death. Check out our website at homefuneralalliance.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to tell a friend and subscribe and review wherever you get your podcasts. If you would like to share your home funeral or natural burial experience on the podcast, please email me at podcast at homefuneralalliance.org. We'd love to hear from you. The music at the beginning and end of A Path Home is written and performed by Sarah Cruz. Our beautiful cover art is by Linda Carre. And until next time, remember the words of Ram Das: We are all walking each other home. I want to be there to walk you home I'll tend to your body, you'll tend to my soul And if it happens the other way around I know you'll gently lay me in the ground Take the next breath Take the